Experience a treasure straight from the Caribbean. It's called Island Spice, right off I-95 at exit 77. Island Spice is beautifully decorated. Try the Rasta pasta, jerk chicken, curry chicken, roti, oxtails, or goat too. Sit in the stylish lounge for happy hour drinks from 4 to 7 daily. Check out their complete menu at islandspicejamaicarestaurant.com or follow us on Facebook for upcoming events like reggae, karaoke, live jazz, and paint night too. Island Spice, make you lick your finger, man. My name is Rich Bennett, and on this episode of Harford County Living, Lyle Garrity and I sat down with members of the Harford County Health Department, and we talked about plan review and food inspections and food safety for restaurants, food trucks, uh, even temporary you know, licensing for, say, setting up a pit beef or a barbecue bash or something like that. A lot of very good information. So sit back and enjoy, and if you have any questions, reach out and contact the Harford County Health Department. Thank you for coming and please send any suggestions or comments to podcast at harfordcountyliving.com. The Harford County Living Podcast is produced for your enjoyment and show notes can be found at harfordcountyliving.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorites, RRS feed, or iTunes. All links are in the show notes. Now let's join Rich Bennett and his special guest. Sitting here at the health department again, this time with, and if I get it wrong, just throw something at me, food services facility plan review, right? Mm-hmm. That and would be my division, yeah. yep. yes. And the food service facility routine inspection. Division. Okay. First, tell us what you guys said. Justin, we'll start with you. What is it that you actually do? Okay, so my official title is the, the program supervisor for the division of food plan review. That's your title? That's the title. That's the new title, right. So what I do in our capacity, there's two of us in my division. Um, anybody who wants to open a retail food service facility in Harford County has to come through our department. So one good example would be a, a brand new restaurant. So if a new okay. restaurant wants to come to our county, they have to apply for building permits, they have to submit plan, plans, a set of plans to our division with equipment cut sheets or spec sheets for every piece of equipment that's going to go in that restaurant. So we review wow. all of this information and then we approve a building permit. That's it, it in a nutshell. So basically any facility that, not just restaurants, I guess any facility that's making food, whether any it be candy or... Well, not necessarily. Any okay. place that's going to serve potentially hazardous food. Food that needs to be either refrigerated or food that's open and served. So if you're just serving Snicker bars, Kit Kats, and bottled water, we don't license you. Really? Right. You can you can sell that without a food license from a county or a state agency. But if you're gonna have you're gonna have like milk or cheese or something that requires refrigeration to control the growth of bacteria, or if you're even gonna have open food, like a hot dog roller at right. a seven eleven, for example, those are foods that have to be controlled by time and or temperature. So then we would license you. But we don't license the sale of retail, non-potentially hazardous foods. Water, right. candy, chips, stuff like that. 
So right, prepackaged. So they have to be commercially prepackaged. Once those non-potentially hazardous foods are opened and served, then we would license you. Now, what about your? All right, because you said any facilities here in the county. That's right. Even the, I guess you could say the roving ones. You know, like the the food trucks. Yes, that's considered a, another um, uh, a food license. They're just on wheels, so we treat them exactly the same. Um, there's a few different uh, restrictions that they have regarding plumbing because they're not connected directly into the the plumbing system. They have a, a contained self self enclosed <laughs> plumbing system, but all the other food handling processes, procedures, regulations are all identical, uh, pertain the same to them as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I was wondering about that because with restaurants, I know if they're serving food, they have to have restrooms, right? Mm-hmm. How does that work with food trucks though? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> so right right now, there is nothing in the regulation um, or in COMAR, it's, uh, our food regulations, 101503, there's nothing that says that the operators of a food truck have to have access to a bathroom on board. They just have to have access to one um, in either close proximity. I don't know the exact words of what it says, but they, if they need to use the restroom, they are on wheels and they can travel to the nearest public restroom to okay. use that. They do have to have hand washing right. on site. So some people might say, oh, they don't have a bathroom. You know, How could you wash your hands? Well, they do have to have adequate hand washing um, in place on their truck. But if they need to use the bathroom, they'll park their truck, lock it up, and walk across the street to a public restroom or drive to an area that has a restroom um, and use it. And then when they board their truck again, they would have to go through the hand-washing process. Are you saying hand-washing, but what about their, you know, as far as equipment and utensils? Does does that fall under hand-washing, too? Well, on the truck, so, you know, when we said that the food trucks have the exact same regulations as a mm-hmm. as a standalone brick and mortar restaurant the food truck also has to be equipped with a three compartment sink for washing your okay. utensils so it's going to be three sinks to wash rinse and sanitize as well as an additional fourth sink to wash specifically just their hands so they don't escape any of those regulations everything is washed rinsed, and sanitized including their hands on that mobile unit okay now, and I don't know if you could answer this or if this this would be for Michael. Like pit beef, you used to see people with pit beef doing them all the time. Now, my understanding is that that has changed because now they have to be affiliated with a restaurant. Or, I mean, how's that work? If we if I want to just go out and start selling pit beef on the on the street corner, so you well. Well, right now, um, because this is sort of still a, a plan review, okay, and then maybe Mike can tail in to the, to the, towards the end of it, but if you just want to set up an open food stand, whether it's pit mm-hmm. beef, pit turkey, or whatever, um, you can't do that unless it's in conjunction with a public event at that point. You have to file for a temporary food permit. Like the barbecue bash. Like yeah, a barbecue bash. Okay. Exactly. If you want to design an enclosed mobile unit that has four walls and a ceiling and a hood system and the hand washing, you can probably have someone extend a mobile unit that has a pit beef stand that's attached to the back of it, but we wouldn't allow you to leave the mobile unit and have a separate pit beef stand outside of the mobile unit, if that makes any sense. You can't set up a pit beef stand with open food and food handling processes away from a licensed mobile unit. So if you did want to go on the side of the street and just sell pit beef to make Mm -hmm. a profit or whatever, it would have to be 
in the confines of an enclosed mobile unit that we license. Interesting. So you would have some people so you can't tow the grill behind it. You can't well, tow. Some people are non-regulation. Yeah. Like right. Well, well, that's yes. true. You may come across various people. You're driving. You see somebody selling pippy. Yeah. Just just because. Well, they probably shouldn't be doing that. They're not licensed to do that. And we should probably know about it. So we can I'm stop it. I'm glad you, glad you, oh, we haven't done that. <laughs> right. Right. I'm glad you told me that. No, I, we've come I across. We've come yeah. across mobile units that were um, operating. They they shouldn't have. We go there and we we shut them down. But no, to answer your question, you can't just set up on the side of a road okay. and, and sell pit beef. Well, I, yeah, similar to the operation we had last year at the Pet Fest, the guy had his, his truck, but his barbecue was built into the uh, back okay. end of the truck. That's right. So, mm -hmm. Or uh, the uh, trailer, rather. It'd be nice if we could afford yeah. something like that. Yeah, it would. Bridges <laughs> <laughs> Pit Beef Stand coming right. to you. So if we, if we set up, as, as a Lion Club, as a nonprofit, we set up at a community event mm -hmm. to sell chili or pit beef or whatever, we just need the temporary food permit for the day. Right. And how did, how did the, the regulations, um, and I've looked at some of this online, but uh, with respect to washing hands and cleaning uh, dishes and utensils, um, I mean, it could be as simple as having three or four or five-gallon buckets, but does that suffice or do you need something more than that? For a temporary food service license, the three clean basins, like you might line the kitchen sink with, or the three clean buckets would suffice. But for his mobile unit setting, they're subject to the regular food service facility regulations. So you could they couldn't just have three portable buckets right, or three right. basins. But in a temporary setting, for tempor under a temporary license, some things are certainly not as stringent. So you could use that kind of okay. setup. For the wear washing, not for the hand sink. For the hand sink. Yeah. Hand sink, you would set up a portable hand wash station. Wear washing, that would be a portable wear washing operation. Right. With three basins, uh, similar to what would be required in a mobile unit. Just that it would need to be like built in and not portable and makeshift in the mobile unit because it's ongoing. It's doing it every day, every week, for uh, for a period of time, up to a year. They, their license is good for. Oh, them. really? Yeah, sure. license up good to you. Good for up to a year. Temporary is good up to fourteen days, up to two weeks. Generally, people okay. call them a one-day temporary permit, but it's good up to fourteen days for the event. The event can be that long. Hmm. Works for us. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. We, you mentioned before we started recording something about food complaints, I guess, from mm -hmm. restaurants. Mm -hmm. And you should, even food complaints on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Yes. How do you guys weed that out? Because, I mean, do you handle that, first of all? Well, M Michael's division handles it more than, okay. more than I do. So I'll let him speak on, on that. But I don't know if we're the ones that weed out. Because we get a lot of our complaints and, and information from Molly's office, but you you would handle most of those complaints? Yes, so they would come into our division, often by way of Molly's, uh, Molly's division. She okay. would pass them on to us. And I guess the uh, shortest answer is that we would be responsible for investigating them all. So even though some might sound far-fetched, we're still required, okay. if it's possible, to, I guess, do what the complaint says alleged was done, 
then we would investigate it. I was wondering about that because, you know, people will put false complaints out there. This just true. If they get mad. Yeah. We get some of those, too. And But people also send in pictures, and then you're like, ooh. <laughs> like, but some of them are just like, this doesn't look, you know, this doesn't look like right. something that would require inspection. But and your requirements are different than, like, you wouldn't, if you got a picture of, like, gunk on a, on a table, you wouldn't necessarily, I mean, you would have to go follow up with them, but that wouldn't require usually um, some sort of inspection or... Um, um, in order to investigate yeah, it, it would require a visit, right. and then we would, I guess we would go from there, we would look at what the complainant alleges occurred and try to see, verify if that did occur, is still occurring, or maybe not likely to have occurred at all. What do you so, feel like the most common the most common thing for a food inspection? Food inspection? Mm -hmm. That's uh, out of uh, compliance? Yes. In full service restaurants, um, it would be a failure to cool food properly. Temperature control. It's, yes, and cooling, in the cooling um, steps or cooling process. Most people or facilities can cook food just fine, or they do cook food just fine. They don't have any problems conducting that adequately. They generally can hot hold food just fine, but many more places, uh, percentage-wise, fail in cooling food properly. It, properly, I guess it just doesn't register. It's, it's not as natural a thought process right. that food is also in the danger zone when it's cooling. As well as uh, cooling is just as important as cooking the food to a good temperature. Cooling back down to a safe temperature is just as important. Cooling Pro before you put it in the refrigerator? Uh, no, cooling including being in the refrigerator. Um, now that's one that's one mistake, kind of like what you were mentioning. Some people think that uh, you have to cool it down before you put it in the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that we come across that people are not cooling properly is they'll cook... Uh, maybe two, three gallons of like a beef stew or something. They want to, then it's really hot. They put it on their counter. They, right. they want to let it cool mm -hmm. before they put it in the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And that's not really the proper way to do it. Um, really? Right. So you want to make sure, you want, the best thing to do is to, to drop the temperature of any food that you plan on cold holding uh, as quickly as possible. We have some time and temperature time frames to guide by, but the idea is to not ever let anything sit out at room temperature or within the danger zone. So you have some allotted time. If, if you have soup at 200 degrees, we don't expect you to just put it in the refrigerator to cool it. Right. But once that soup or whatever it is you're cooling drops down to about 135 degrees, now at that 135 degree mark, you have to start your cooling process whether it's breaking down into smaller containers, increasing the surface area, um, putting it into different pots that are not the ones that you cooked in, but a so cooler pot. And then you then put them in the refrigerator or freezer, uncovered, protected. You know, you don't want to put it underneath something, but you right. want to put it on a, an upper shelf, uncovered, and really draw out all that hot temperature to cool it to 41 or lower within six hours. And then what is it? Um, 135 to 70 within the first two hours, and then from 70 to 41 in the remaining four hours. 
So you, wow. that's the so idea. It, so a timer. <laughs> so um, I guess the gist of that is that a timer, the timer starts at the 135. So you cook the soup so on the stove, it comes off at 200, 205, what have you. It is okay to leave that soup on the counter at 200 and 190 and 170. But at the point in time that it gets down to 135, that's where the danger zone for food and bacterial growth begins. And at that point, it needs to start cooling rapidly. So you probably don't want to, you, if you put that hot soup, 135 degree soup, in the refrigerator, it needs to be broken down into small units that, that a refrigerator can cool right. in a short amount of time without overpowering that refrigerator, making everything in there warm. And now nothing's cold or cooling. And uh, your cooling process won't occur quickly at that point. So you do want to lose a lot of that heat before it ever goes into the refrigerator. That's, I'm, it, hopefully everybody listening to this realizes they should do that at home, too, because I never do that. Yeah, I think all the things that mom used to do when we were little are, are, yeah. uh, don't apply today. We're going to get you perfect yanked. Mike talked so. about hard-boiled eggs. Because like my process of hard-boiled eggs is not what you should do. <laughs> so don't well, eat any of mine because well, <laughs> <laughs> okay you know, she were quick to feed me on May 3rd too <laughs> <laughs> well you were saying the hard boiled eggs because we were talking about the process of um, the best way for the skin not to stick is to boil them and then to give it an ice bath and then to like mm -hmm. put it in your refrigerator mm -hmm. but you were talking about how if you put it in the refrigerator if you put the eggs in the refrigerator while still really hot, it could change the temperature of your refrigerator yes. with your other food. Could eat the refrigerator yeah. up. And then things that were already cold <laughs> right. won't, won't be cold anymore, and anything you were trying to cool is capable of cooling yeah. down. Yeah, yeah. yeah a lot, of, a lot of dense foods will do that because they, they retain that heat for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you, if you cook a large pot, you know, a few-gallon pot of whatever, like a dense chili or, or a soup, and you just take that entire pot, even at 135 degrees, even if you were waiting to get to that danger zone, and then you right. go to put it in the refrigerator, and you think you're doing the right thing. If it's too thick, or if it's too dense, or it's too much, and you don't do anything like add ice, or put an ice wand, or stir it, or anything like that, you can come back 24 hours later, and it still won't be down to say 70, 50. Wow. It won't, it won't drop temperature. That's right. why you need, like Mike said, break it down into smaller portions. And we usually go on a general rule of, uh, if it's like a liquid of some kind, no greater than two or three inches deep. So you want to put in these like hotel pans of no, so you put it in two or three inches deep and plus it increases the surface area. The idea of get all that heat to escape. Right. But you definitely don't want to put a, you know, a few gallon pot of soup in the refrigerator. It will never cool down in time. Right. Well, we know that the way we <laughs> yeah so new to learn we love uh, one of our members in the lines club loves uh, making well chili and, and soup, soup. Yeah. yeah and 10 gallons at a time and yeah so we'll now we'll keep it overnight he cooks it in the morning and then we'll take it down to the large refrigerator at the club the walk-in uh, no, nah, yeah. but um, that's the only thing in it other than maybe some sodas but by that time, it's it's generally uh, pretty cool, mm -hmm. and so we'll leave it in there, you know, overnight until the event the next day. That would be safe if it were 
three inches in depth or less. So we should. If it were six inches or greater, it won't cool down so in six hours. So for now, he's got to make it fresh that day. <laughs> the easiest way to handle that is to have it be fresh from yeah. the day of, because mm -hmm. again, the hot holding is a lot easier to accomplish than cooling. Cooling is a pretty difficult process. You can take two sticks, go out in the woods and rub two sticks together, and if you know what you're doing and you're persistent, you can create heat and start a fire, but you'll never get a refrigerator working like guess, that out in the woods. I guess, too. It's a, it's a, it's a very yeah. difficult process. Yeah. That would be kind of hard. Yeah. I guess, too, it would make more sense to break it down into separate containers because if you take that big container out and reheat it, it don't finish it all, you don't want to cool it back down again, do you? Um, I mean, that could be dangerous. A too second well. time, you're saying? Yeah. A second time. If, if each one of those steps were done adequately, it would still be safe. Really? Yeah, it would still be safe. You would just have to repeat it each time you want to cool it down. There technically is no limit to how many times you can heat and cool things down. Mm -hmm. Now, you're, the quality of your food might go down, but that's not any of our concern. The safety. safety. <laughs> <laughs> so you could reheat it just Oops. fine. But, um, but yeah, if like, like, like Mike said, if you're at me now, <laughs> I, I, well, I'm a sticker on that because one thing I hate is, well, no, number one, I believe in eating leftovers. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell my wife, <laughs> she takes something down and reheats it and don't finish eating it all. I'll tell her, don't, uh, you know, just throw it away. You already reheated it once. You don't want to reheat it again. But now you're telling me I could, so. Yeah, if you I didn't, if you didn't abuse it, it. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't abuse the temperature. Um, between reheating it or putting, you know, if you took out a thing of chili that was previously cooked the day before and you heated it up but you didn't finish it, right. if that chili didn't sit out for too long, and you can certainly cool it again and reheat it the next day and cool it again. Even, had, even if you reheat it in the microwave? Yeah, no, it doesn't matter the, the heat source and as long as you get that entire thing heated up to 165 degrees. Is the reheating temperature. So right. second time heats or reheats are in general hotter than the first time cooked temperatures required. Most foods are considered to be adequately cooked their first time mm -hmm. at 145, but all of them need to be 165 within only two hours for a reheat, meaning the second time that food was brought up to, I guess, eating temperature. It needs to go higher the second time, yeah. and it needs to happen quickly. You got a time limit. If cooking it the first time, you could slow cook your pork or your beef right. for a day or a day and a half, and it would be okay. But not the reheat, not the second time it's brought up to temperature. It's two hours or less. Okay, you told me that too. Because mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Because um, bacteria are always in competition with one another, and when you cook that food the first time, you've eliminated a large percentage of various species of bacteria right. and when that food cool, cool, cools back down those that didn't get completely eliminated with that first cook now have unfettered access to the remaining food and so that's why that reheat is going to and the cooling is a lot more important or just as important as that first time cook because it favors those that didn't get eliminated on that first time cook Huh. So they don't have to compete with all the others that were there initially anymore. Now, storing yeah. food as well. I mean, there's, like, whether you're storing in the walk-in or whatever, there's certain levels where you should store it as well, right? There's, there's, a, there's a hierarchy of, of 
what types of food you store where. Right. And it goes by cook temperature, the initial cook temperature. Okay. So the foods that require the greatest cook temperature, like your poultry, your turkey, that requires 165 degrees. It takes a lot of heat to cook that and to kill the bacteria that is normally associated with those types of foods. Mm-hmm. Those are stored at the bottom. And then it goes by 10 degree increments based on the type of food. So poultry and your feathered animals are at the bottom, 165. Then you jump up to 155, you can have on the next shelf up. Right. Your, uh, your ground beef, ground, all your ground foods, um, uh, ground fish, anything that's combined together. Then you're going to get into your whole muscle, like your steak, whole fish, things like that will be at 145. The next level okay. up is 135, which would be your vegetables or pre-cooked foods. Um, and that's because if anything on a shelf above it were to drip down on the shelf below it, whatever drips down on that one, you're going to cook it to a higher temperature right. than the one above it anyway. So if you had um, a piece of bloody steak that might have been dripping down, a whole muscle steak dripping down onto, let's say, a piece a of cake. chicken. Oh. Well, no, not, well, not yeah. a cake. <laughs> but if it, were to drip, if it were to drip down onto a chicken, um, you're not going to cook that chicken to only 145 no. like you would for the steak. You're going to cook it to 165. So you're eliminating the potential of that cross-contamination, which is why you don't want to store cake underneath chicken. You want that at the top. Because you're not going to cook that. Well, I bring that up because, and I never knew, I never knew that. When I worked at um, a restaurant that's no longer in business, good figure, uh, <laughs> one of the things I, I never knew about that. And I remember the owner coming in yelling at somebody because they had put a cake on the bottom, actually below the chicken, mm. and say, like, uh, no, throw it away. Well, that's a good owner. I mean, they, they well, should yeah. be. Did the right thing. They did the right thing. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things they did. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that good, I mean, that's, like you said, that there is a rhyme or reason why we are, you know, particular about how they store things. Right. Because things will drip. I mean, it's not oh, perfect. Yeah. So when if they were to drip, whatever was contaminated, hopefully will be cooked to the proper temperature, eliminating any of the bacteria that came from the shelf above it. That's the idea. Well, you buy fresh meat, fresh poultry, whatever. Bring it home or bring it to the restaurant. How long can you put it in the refrigerator for or should you freeze it right away? I mean, I don't know if you guys can answer that or not because I know, like, a lot of times I'll bring roast home and I'll just put it on the bottom shelf in the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. You know, but... And usually I'll, I want to cook it the next day. Uh, well, freezing it wise. If you're just, if you're talking about raw, yeah, food, raw, raw yeah, fresh, meats, raw, raw. So we uh, maybe Mike can correct me if I'm if I'm misspoken, but in our regulation, we don't determine how long something can be in the fridge okay. for. We will determine if it has like a foul smell or if it appears yeah. to be spoiled. We'll observe it visually, and okay. if we happen to smell it and smell spoiled, if the food is adultered um, we will you know tell them to discard that but there's nothing that says in our regulation that okay you get a fresh piece of chicken from your vendor you can only hold it for X number of days you can freeze it for quite a long time that will preserve it for a very long time in the refrigerator um, you know there's not a specific number of days um, because different vendors might have held it for a longer time than another vendor before you actually get it. So restaurant A might receive their chicken from this vendor and they might have gotten it maybe a day after it was butchered, let's just say. But another vendor might have sent it three days after it was butchered. 
but when they get it, there's no specific time frame of how long they can hold it. Hmm. They have to visually observe to see whether or not that piece of meat is spoiled and if it's still good or viable. Okay. I don't know if you have any other hmm. way to determine. Uh, I guess the, the the federal foods folks, the FDA, right? I think they recommend three to four days maximum for raw meats like that. And then things that are cooked maybe seven days at the longest after they've cooked. Wow. Uh, okay. Again, quality can suffer. It's going to diminish throughout those right. periods. But I think those are outside maximums. Okay. Three to four days for something that is raw and hasn't been cooked, a meat item or poultry. And no more than seven for things that have been cooked. I mean, have been cooked. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, let's say um, I just come to the county. I want to open up a <clears throat> restaurant. Right. How long is the process between plan review and everything? Saying the building's already done, but how long is the process before I can actually open up? Okay, so that is um, that is the division that I'm a part right. of. So what we do, I, the the straight answer is there really is no right answer of how or how okay. long. There's no there's no definitive number of days that we have to to get the project open. It's all dependent on the contractors, the applicants. Um, if so, if you're, for your example, if you're going into a facility and the building is already there, you're going into an empty tenant spot. Right. And if, if you don't require a building permit, if you're going into a place that used to be a food facility and you don't have to do any structural changes and you don't need a building permit, um, we wouldn't require any architecturally stamped plans or, or anything official as far as building permits or plans. We would need some sort of a documented plan, whether you're, you can draw it on graph paper or you can, you're good with a computer. We would need something that shows what you want to do. Right. Um, and you would show us what equipment you want to put in there. Um, and since there's no building permit that needs to be applied for or signed off on, it, it could be as quick as um, however long it takes you to get those plans together. We do a first-in, first-out review process, so you know it might be a few days before we get to actually look at your plan. But in general, I mean, it's it's relatively quick. You know, we never give an exact time, but I'd say if if the, for that scenario, within a week, we would have a um, a word back to you saying whether or not we need you to make changes back and forth. And then when you make those changes, we say, okay, go ahead and and build out your restaurant. And now that whole thing changes if you're going into a, a brand new place where there's lots of things that need to be altered. New plumbing, new fixtures, and all that kind of stuff. So there's there's no exact number of days of how long it takes. It depends, it's, it's scenario based. Okay. Um, depends if there's a permit that needs to be pulled, uh, right. how many things you're actually changing. Now, if you were going into an existing place that was a restaurant and maybe it had just recently closed, and you just want to go in and reopen it. Say there was a diner and it was in operation and for whatever reason they closed, but all the equipment is still there. Um, and there's no structural things that need to be taken care of. They just, they just went out of business for whatever reason. You want to go in and reopen it as is. Same equipment, same stuff. That would fall under what we call a change of ownership. If, okay. it, was, if it was recently closed and it hadn't been shut down for too long. Uh, at that point, there is no plan review. We would just go with you to the facility and inspect every square inch of that place and give you a list of items that need to be corrected or brought up to par and up to code with our current standard. We leave you with that list and however long it takes you to get that list corrected is however long it's going to take you to open. Okay. So it could take you a day, it could take you six months. 
So it all depends on how the, the shape of that facility. Um, there's places that just recently closed, and, a, and somebody might go in there and they want to reopen it. We might have on record that that place was already you know in good compliance. Right. We go in there. There might be a few things that need to change. They might be able to open by the end of the next day. You know, wow. It's it all depends on the shape of the facility you're trying to take over. Okay. So that would be a change of ownership. Is this this the same for food trucks? Or similar process? It could be similar. Yeah, yeah it, it, all the stuff that we're talking about related to brick and mortar places would still fall under for food trucks. So if you had a, a, a food truck and you didn't want to operate it anymore and you sold it to your brother-in-law, he would have to then go through a change of ownership process. We would inspect the truck. If there were any regulation changes from the time that you had it to the time he's taking it over, we make sure that those updates have been made on the truck and then we would follow the same procedure. We'd inspect it, leave him with a list, and then, um, so there's no grandfathering of any, any. Uh, well, the, I don't know if the term grandfather really exists, but there are some things that places do get away from, and they're not normally our say at the health department. But there are certain jurisdictions within the county that do allow certain things to, I guess, to not be brought up to code. Um, not, not necessarily code, but for example, there's uh, in Havity Grace. It's a historical city mm -hmm. so a lot of the buildings can't be manipulated so they may not have wheelchair access they might not have right. ADA compliance they might not have a bathroom that has 25 square feet of radial turn for a wheelchair they're not they're not going to ask to change out all of this stuff for a historical building so the city of Havity Grace as an example might say we will not make you include those changes on your plan review but a norm um, a, a place that wants to go in brand new, a brand new building, we would require right. all of those. Now, s some of that stuff I just mentioned is more on the building department, but one example that we would say, uh, that we would ask for is a grease interceptor. There are some areas and jurisdictions in Hartford County that, that won't require it. For example, in downtown Havity Grace, where it is a historical area, where it's nearly impossible to physically install a grease interceptor, we normally require those in new restaurants or if you're making major renovations, mm -hmm. um, but they have determined that they didn't want to keep restaurants from opening because they couldn't put in a grease interceptor, so they have been not installing them. Wow. So that's sort of your grandfather remark. That's sort of right. one example. Okay, I thought you were going to ask something. Nope, I think you I answered it. <laughs> with, with, with the food trucks, I guess, I don't know, would the ins are, are the inspections actually truffer? Truffer, yeah. <laughs> I think it was truffles. Yeah. Um, tougher on the food trucks, and the reason I'm is that is because, like, with emissions and everything. Well, we that's not our say. So they do have to have proper registration, licensing, and inspections and everything through the Department of Motor vehicles, right? They uh, have to. They'll they'll show us that they have an updated registration and all that okay. stuff. But as far as the actual the truck, the engine and the emissions and the mechanical part of the truck, we are hands off. We okay. do send the truck to the electrical department before they even come to us. So they they have to get all the electrical workings inspected. The electrical panel that runs all the equipment that is plugged into the truck. Mm -hmm. They also have a switch that can switch from generator use to. Uh, if they want to plug the truck into a, an actual outlet. Right. So all the electrical stuff, we outsource that to the electrical department. 
They're the experts, so they inspect, um, and then they keep going back for inspections until they pass the electrical department. Okay. Once the electrical department s- says that you know that we approve them, then they come through us to do the food handling and the food uh, equipment inspections. But they uh, before they do any of that, all of their the motor vehicle stuff should have been taken care of before they're even on the road right. to drive it. I guess you're seeing yeah. more and more food trucks pop up around here. We too. see a lot. Yeah. When I started here about seven and a half years ago, we had not not counting um, um, the Schwans, which is like the you know the, the, the delivery. delivery. Right. Yeah. yeah, they just have the frozen ones, but actual right. food trucks that are cooking and everything. We probably had like I think like eleven or so, and we have like close to thirty. Plus, food trucks that are actually cooking in the county. Yeah. Interesting. I never see yeah. any. <laughs> the reason why you probably don't see a lot is um, a lot of them get licensed be- in this county because they want to participate in a lot of the bigger events. So you'll see them okay. at the events, but you won't necessarily see them driving around because Harford County, they they're set up different than like Baltimore. Baltimore has a lot more foot traffic in so many more areas. Yeah. But Harford County, you go to a site, you know, you're not going to get the foot traffic. So right. a lot of them get licensed here, but they end up traveling down to Baltimore, into specifically city. into the city, or they'll, a lot of them work down in Washington, D.C. A lot right. of our trucks are also licensed in D.C. Mm. If you've ever been down there, it's the entire street is completely yes. flooded. Right. You can get every kind of food from every country in the world from one it's truck to the next. Wild, actually. Yeah, so a lot of our trucks do go down there. Um, but they get okay. licensed up here because once they're licensed here, they can operate at festivals and fairs and sporting events. And if they want to go to a nearby construction site to serve lunch for those days, they can do that without getting any additional license. So they don't have to get licensed in each county. They do have to get licensed oh, in each county. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that's um, a new a new proposal that went through for the mobile units is a reciprocity license. So okay. once you get licensed in a home county whatever that home county may be, wherever your commissary is, um, you can then subsequently get licensed in every other county and you don't have to come through my division or the Division of Plan Review to get licensed. You just hand in all of your documents from the previous county that licensed you and we say, okay, you're licensed. And we never even see the truck. Wow. We are hoping that the previous county that licensed them did all the right steps in licensing them. Now, we will still send them to... Harford County Electrical Services to get inspected if the previous county didn't um, have that demand or that requirement, or we'll send them to um, Mr. Bill Giles with the fire marshal. Mm-hmm. He'll have to inspect their hood system for the fire suppression. There are still some discrepancies on how the mobile units are handled. Some counties are doing them a little differently than others. Mm-hmm. There's still uh, an effort to standardize that process. I'd say Harford County is probably the more um, stricter, m- you know, more appropriate uh, inspection process. We, okay. we kind of cover everything. Where there are other counties that are still not requiring certain things, we require everything. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what you're seeing, another thing you're seeing pop up a lot are breweries. Mm-hmm. Now, and with, with food and everything, you sell food, but mm-hmm. do you, do they have to put together, what do they call them, vats or whatever? Mm-hmm. Does that go through you? If they're just a brewery, no, we don't license just a brewery. Okay. But if they're serving food? If they're serving food, we'll strictly look at just the food service. The food. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, if there's a brewery and they and they have an on-site 
brewery system with with all of their containers and you know they're putting all the ingredients together that's a separate entity so there's another yeah there's okay. other agencies I'm not quite who they are but they they will inspect and, and license that division okay but if they are doing on-site food service we will inspect that particular area we'll exclude the the beer process I guess that's why you're seeing some of them will just have a food truck there now mm-hmm. well yeah there's uh, there's a lot of discrepancy I, I'm pretty sure when you have a, a liquor license some of the requirements are that you have to serve food in right. some capacity now that has changed over the years it used to be um, like open food of some kind but now I think they're getting away with just having um, like even snacks like pretzels or chips but they, still, but they still want to serve um, food to the public, so they'll hire mobile right. units to, to kind of sit outside for people to go. Uh, yeah, because I know, well, back guy years ago, we used to have a restaurant, a nightclub, and I know we had to sell a certain amount of food for mm. the liquor part, not the beer part, but the hard liquor part. Mm. You had to sell a certain amount of food for of course, that was several years ago. You you probably weren't even born yet, Justin. So <laughs> I'm sure that's probably changed by now. You know, but now, all right. So somebody calls up Molly, or they call Molly for with a food complaint. Mm-hmm. How quick do you have to get out there and inspect it? Because um, you know somebody could see it online, complain, and all of a sudden it's gone. Uh, well, I get, it depends on what type of complaint it is. Okay. Uh, if it's just foodborne, if it is foodborne illness, I think we run a three-day interval, maximum interval, uh, to go out and investigate the complaint. Mm-hmm. And if it's just regarding food handling, no one claims they've gotten sick, they complain about how they food, how food's handled in the facility, mm-hmm. then that would be five, five what, days. What about rodents? That would be a condition in the facility, five days. Okay. Food handling or conditions in the facility. Okay. Not uh, which, I guess, generated illness. So you go in, if they fail the inspection, <coughs> then they're shut down for what? Until they can resolve the, the issues. Okay. So Critical they, violations cause a facility to be closed. If they have any critical violations that they cannot resolve immediately they have to close down until they can resolve all critical violations do you have a process for weeding through complaints um, or do you or do you have to address everyone or Um, well for me I like best practices to just address everyone and you you can kind of after doing it for a long period of time you can kind of tell what's what's genuine and what is Somebody yeah, just doesn't like a restaurant, so they're going to complain about it. I think for the most part, everybody's like pretty genuine with their complaints yeah. for, um, for really any kind of complaint they submit through the website. A lot of things I can just handle myself and just kind of respond, but other things like food complaints and I'll just forward to forward yeah. the appropriate staff member. A lot of times we'll get, um, like if somebody gets ill from a restaurant they'll submit a complaint and then say it's like a large party so there's like 20 people at their table mm-hmm. they'll have like all 20 people email through the website so then you just have to does that count as one infraction for the restaurant or would you count that as 20 different 20 complaints 20 complaints mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so i would just forward you know those 20 emails to them right and just mm-hmm. say 
You have a lot of emails coming <laughs> soon. <laughs> yeah. how, we just had one last week. How does that work with, like we were talking about earlier, the temporary food license? Mm-hmm. How does that work with the license? I mean, you can't, can't really shut them down if it's only a one-day event. Yeah, How's what work? With in, in other words, if there's a, a complaint, mm-hmm. whether they handled the food wrong or somebody got sick, mm-hmm. and they had a temporary license, so you know you, you get the report, but the event's already over. Yeah. So. So I mean, do, would they get a fine or to, something? I mean, precious little to investigate at that point in time. Okay. So you would. That to follow up, but as you noting, it would be no physical evidence in all in most of all cases, nothing to verify, confirm, or exclude the possibility that it happened. Okay. So you would need to discuss that, of course, with the operator, just like a permanent facility, and ask them about it, and um, go. F- I guess go from their responses. Oftentimes, we get complaints uh, that have um, photographs yeah. included. So something like that would be some evidence mm-hmm. that right. certain thing yeah. occurred. And we've had, um, and I, I won't name any names or anything, but we've had uh, complaints for temporary food vendors along with video clips. Everyone has a phone now. So when they're out doing festivals and stuff, we've actually had videos of mishandled food at a food vendor or at a food event. So we know... We know the infraction. We know what what the problem was, and we also know who did it because it's it's on video right. for them actually doing it. That will weigh heavily on us allowing them to operate again. So we can't shut them down because they don't have a license. But if they were to apply to to do another event, we will, we will think twice about it and say, well, you have a history of doing this, or however we will handle it at that time. It will weigh heavily on our our because when you apply that's what you're doing you're applying it doesn't mean you're actually going to get one we have to do a phone interview um, to talk about what food handling process processes you're gonna do and how you're gonna do it if you're gonna do it right mm-hmm. we talk we explain to them we have the the we talked earlier before we started this we have a temporary um, food setup uh, YouTube video that kind of explains how to set it up properly and, and what the right steps are but if somebody if we have on record that we have complaints about your operation in the past, along with a video proof. We we have all the right to either deny it or heavily, you know, watch over them, you know, inspect them. Maybe come back in the afternoon for a follow up inspection. Um, okay. So there, it, it will. Although we can't close them down for that prior uh, complaint, when they go to reapply for another event down the road, that's when that's when it will hurt them. Have you guys, and I don't know if you do this or not, and if not, have you thought about it? You know, all right, if with events or restaurants, whatever, that serve liquor, you have to have somebody which is tip certified. With the food, you know, whether it be restaurant or temporary, is there like a food safety course that the people have to take? Or have you guys even thought about maybe making that a mandatory thing? Maybe a good idea. <laughs> well, there is, and I'll let Mike okay. talk about that. Well, it's not required. Uh, the Maryland State Legislature has, um, I guess, looked into that okay. many times in the past, but at this point in time, there's not a statewide requirement really? for food service or food handling certification. Some counties, I don't know Baltimore County has it, um, do have that requirement in their local code, right? Uh, but not statewide. 
however, there are courses available to food hand, for food handlers to get certification. It's just not required in Harford County because there's not a statewide requirement for that. Uh, Have you ever the seen one, a day where it is mandatory? Or do you hope it will become mandatory? Uh, we don't see any. We don't see much improvement for the people that claim to have the certification versus those that don't. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, it's always, although, like Mike said, although we don't, if we looked at all the restaurants and we mm -hmm. categorize ones that have a serve safe manager certification or people on staff that were certified for proper right. food handling, we looked at the group that didn't have it. He's right. There usually is not a you know, a distinction in, you know, okay, these people know what they're doing because they're certified and they hardly have any violations and these people don't. There isn't, but I would still say that it's better to at least have those folks at least go through a course at least once right? In their, so that they can sort of be cognizant of, okay, food handling really is important. I mean, 5,000 people a year die from foodborne illnesses. Yeah. So, it is important. So even if it changed one or two restaurants to better themselves to wash your hands after going to the bathroom <laughs> or, you know, don't cross contaminate or follow this. I mean, it's always better to inform them and let them make the mistake than to not require the certification right. to begin with. So although there's not a huge difference, I, I think um, if you start to require it, I think... Um, It'll it'll just play on their mind and, and it'll increase awareness. Yeah, it'll it'll help increase awareness. Well, and the reason I bring it up too, because like I said, when I worked at the at the one restaurant, you know, I was back there cooking. But when they hired me, of course, they teach you all the different things there. Thank God, because one of the things I never even thought about different cutting boards. Mm -hmm. You know, like you have one strictly for poultry, one strictly yep. for seafood. They usually color. Never thought them, yeah. about that. Mm -hmm. I've colored tongs. Yeah, yeah I, I would have just, you know, all right, I'm cutting my meat on this. Let's go back, wash it. Now let's do the chicken. Well, they even sell that for your house now. Yeah, different color cutting boards. Yeah, no, I've tried to get them, but I was yeah. told no. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't need any more gadgets. <laughs> so. <laughs> But the, oh, all those all those little things are really good for for food handling. I mean, they do make a difference. But again, the people have to follow it. You can yeah. have produce cutting boards and meat cutting boards, but people could still be lazy and yeah, just well, grab the produce one that they just cut meat with. So it all goes back to, I mean, really hiring people who care or to do the right thing. Yeah. You can have all the training or the serve safe certifications, but if the staff is just if you have someone who's lazy who doesn't want to take the extra step that's true to to wash their hands in between a certain task or to properly change out their gloves or to break down this chili to cool it properly um they're they're going to just skip those steps you just mentioned something gloves mm -hmm. now and i didn't realize this too apparently you, there's certain types of gloves like was it latex you're not supposed to use or something with powder you're not supposed to use. Well, I don't. We don't. We don't regulate the the type of glove. Okay. I mean, as long as it's a 
food safe glove. Like you can't just you can't use gloves that you would go welding with. But it well, has to be a. It has to be, be some tough food. If you <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. I mean, if you give anybody any kind of just blank statement of yeah. using gloves, they will just find a pair of gloves that they just change their tire. With. I'm wearing gloves. You didn't say what kind of glove. So it does have to be a, a food safe glove. Okay. Um, typically, they're latex or vinyl or plastic or something. Um, there are people who are allergic to latex, so most food places will not order those right. because you don't want to make someone's food and then they're allergic to latex and so on and so forth. So most, uh, the powder ones, I, I personally like those because when you, when, in a proper way to use gloves is you have to wash your hands just prior to putting the gloves on. Right. So you wash your hands and then you go to put gloves on. And if you don't entirely dry your hands with the disposable towel, and there might be a little bit of moisture on your hand, they're hard to get on. So the ones with powder are easier to get on, more inclined for people to actually use the gloves. Mm -hmm. If they're a pain to get on, they're gonna the heck with it and they might not wash their hands, they'll just put the gloves on because their hands are dry. So if you have gloves that are good and, and easy to put on, they, be, they will be more inclined to actually wear them. So the powder's inside the gloves, it's not gonna seep through. I guess. I even if it did, I think the manufacturers make it where it's safe. I mean, okay. they are meant for food. They're usually okay. NSF certified or ETL sanitated. A lot of different third-party agencies that certify these food handling gloves and utensils. But like I said, you can't just go and grab any pair of gloves right. to, to do it. Got so. my winter gloves on. <laughs> I just made a snowball with it earlier. Well, okay. I mean, it, I mean, it's funny, but there actually there are certain gloves that are um, like cut proof. Yes, they're, they're cloth and they have this, the the steel ridges on there, mm -hmm. so you don't cut your fingers. Well, we've seen people in food service establishments trying to use those gloves to now like handle to continue on. So maybe they're cutting, you know, big frozen pieces of lamb or, or chicken or something so they don't get cut. And those gloves should be properly washed and sanitized, but they can't go and start mixing salad with those gloves. I mean, right. you really gotta be careful with with the style gloves. With the plastic gloves on over top of them. It, well, they, well it, I've, I've <laughs> seen people do that though. I mean, you can, if mm -hmm. you're cutting the meat, you know, cause it's almost like a chain ball glove. It's, yeah, that's yeah. right. You know, put a plastic glove over top if you're gonna be touching that meat. But some chain mall things. Yeah, but that's be hard, hard to bend your fingers. What's well, not an actual chain? No, no, I know. I've used one before. I'm just saying, oh. like, they're just. It's. I can't. They don't imagine. have the dexterity. <clears throat> Yeah. What did you say? They don't have the dexterity. Right. Yeah, I like just can't imagine being like able to do anything else besides like hold something. <laughs> if anything. Yeah. And that would be a practice that wouldn't be approved because you didn't wash your hands before you put on those gloves. So the chainmail glove would need to come off and stay off. Right. Wash your hands. Now put on the disposable glove. So the thought or the idea of putting it on both would be outside regulatory requirements too. Like I said, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk really quickly about um, people who cook or bake out of their home with intention to sell? Uh -huh. um, yeah, that's one of my questions. Yeah. Uh, there's a category called the cottage food industry, cottage food um, re food requirements. And uh, I guess they're using cottage to indicate a small or startup or very small mm -hmm. base operations. Um, they are limited to sales of not greater than $25,000 per year. And initially, they were supposed to only 
allow for eligibility foods that are what Jay, uh, Justin had mentioned earlier, non-potentially hazardous foods. Okay. And those are foods that don't support the ra rapid bacterial growth of pathogenic bacteria. So things like granola, cereal, baked goods like cookies or standard cakes, uh, not to include cheesecakes because they need refrigeration is our belief, and things like custard-based pies like right. pumpkin pie or sweet potato pie. They generally have custards in their formulations, so those things, even though grandma didn't put them in the refrigerator <laughs> after she made them, it stayed out on the counter for however long they wanted to be out, they should be refrigerated. Okay. So those things weren't eligible. But that's slowly starting to be modified. At any rate, these people with those non-potentially hazardous foods can prepare them in a home kitchen and then bring them out to the public. Uh, initially it was limited to just farmers markets would be mm -hmm. one place you could sell those goods and uh, in other public events like a fair or a carnival right. or a big exhibition show sporting event etc um, that's starting to be modified and those goods can be I guess dispensed in greater uh, in, in more allowance, more acceptance. They can they can now sell them directly from their homes to individuals. Really? They can sell them mail order to individuals now. Mm -hmm. And um, they, they even, most recently, uh, opted to include retail facilities. So they can sell them to giant supermarket and Weiss markets and whatever, wherever else they would, they would like to. Um, on the cottage foods, they have to have a statement uh, they have to be labeled, right? And they have to list the ingredients in condescending, uh, well, Easy. in descending or, uh, order, <laughs> not condescending. In descending order, and according with their promise in in the product, and they have to have a a label that says something to the effect of made by a cottage food vendor, um, not subject to Maryland's food safety regulations or not subject to food safety regulations. So that the individual that buys them and consumes them would be aware that it's not an inspected operation that um, created those foods. Uh, so that is another requirement. They all Each unit has to be labeled at the place of manufacturer and they can't ever have them open. They have to be fully sealed created with seal in the label back where it was manufactured, but they also have no contact at all with local health departments or the state health department in regards to having their facility or their operation evaluated. So if food's made in a home kitchen and brought out and dispensed to the public, those are cottage food. Okay, and that, that applies across the board. Um, for example, if, if our Leo group, the, the teenage group, wants to sell cookies in an event, they need to be wrapped, labeled. They can't be laid out on the tray in the open. Right. Each one has to be completely labeled. The regulations will say what size font is required and the fact that that, that label, uh, the letters, the characters have to right. be in contrast with the background label. You can't put yellow letters on a yellow sheet of paper or that kind of thing. But, yeah, um, just about any uh, facility. Just the ingredients and what it's made with now, especially because of allergies. Any allergens yeah. have to be mm -hmm. stated as well. 
So about the only place you really can sell them, then I guess would be the schools still. Because mm. well, I, I bet. Right I now. mean, the schools are a licensed establishment. We license the school. Kitchens. No, I mean, like if we made it at home and had invented the school, this is what we were told a while ago that you're not allowed to sell baked goods at a school event unless you buy it from a store. No, do we allow bake sales? Not really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I'm going to be. And most, and most of those bake school. sales would fall under like a temporary. I mean, well, I mean, if you wanted to package it under a cottage food, they would be able to do that. But if if they wanted to apply for a, a bake sale, you mean the school itself wanting to sell those things? No, no, no. No, it's like there's some schools hold events, whether okay. it be a field day or whatever, and they ask for vendors. Okay. And. You know, we had, I forget who it was, but they wanted to go in and sell some cookies that they made at home. And they were told they're not allowed to because it's against regulation, health regulation. You cannot sell anything you make at home at the school. The, um, it has to be bought at a store. The packaged. school's <laughs> operation, if the cookies were created by the school and their, I guess, staff or affiliates, okay. would be okay. But in the past, those things could not be cooked by John Taylor and brought into the school and the school sell them out. The school could create it, you know, that okay. them as an organization, a nonprofit organization, selling non perhaps non potentially hazardous goods was another way foods could be prepared in a home kitchen and doled out to the public. Cottage food is a different way okay. that things could be done at a home kitchen and doled out to the public. And for the case of those baked goods, they couldn't be done in, um, I guess, all of those private homes mm-hmm. and then be sold and labeled and done under the auspice of being uh, Youth Benefits Elementary School because Youth Benefit didn't create those. They're just the ones that sell them. So, however, it, it, it could be a, a bake sale. Mm-hmm. And those things created by youth benefit staff as an organization could be then dispensed to the public. Okay. Just couldn't. Think, each I... each individual student couldn't make them at home at their own homes, and then I guess try to dispense them as being a youth benefit. They would have to actually item. cottage food label them in that every would... single individual one. Okay. You can put them in bulks of a dozen, and then that dozen would have to be packaged and labeled. But if they would make them and set them out, you couldn't do that under the cottage right. food. Um, and then the one other thing, too, with the cottage food is it has to be within the state. So if I was a cottage food person and I was making chocolate chip cookies at home, I couldn't sell it to places in Pennsylvania or Delaware at or New the, Jersey. At the Pennsylvania uh, Dutch market. You you ha- it has to, all the sales have to be done within the state of Maryland. Um, I don't know how how they regulate that with these internet sales. Right. You're, they're, if they're being honest and they're following the rules, they're probably not supposed to mail them across state lines. Like if you had somebody buy them from California and you're going to mail your cookies with a Maryland cottage food label, right. I don't think you can do that. I don't know how it's followed. I don't know how they regulate that, but that's you can't sell it outside of Maryland. Yeah, I was going to say, that'd be kind of tough. Yeah. Someone. To regulate. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We've, you know, everyone has their own opinion on yeah. the cottage food. I'm not a huge fan because of the direction it's going. Like Mike said, it's starting to open it up to potentially hazardous foods, right. which now we're starting to 
get away from real public health. When you start letting people make potentially hazardous foods, not cooks, cookies and cake, but now you're going to let them make you know, things that do require refrigeration, you're going to sell them to the public without having their kitchen inspected or using home-style equipment. Yeah. Then you're getting into a dangerous area of Molly's in box is going to be flooded with <laughs> outbreaks of people getting sick from eating <laughs> really bad food. Um, pet hairs. Yeah, you got people pet at home, pets lizards. climbing on the counters. Uh, and yeah. Lizards. Lizards, Whatever. what? <laughs> people have all kinds of pets in their homes. Yeah. You know, so all of these things is, yeah. are in their homes. Yeah. So those things will get this accidentally. This is my lizard. Can somebody search their cake? <laughs> <laughs> I had a lizard once and I was like terrified. <laughs> I never touched it and it was gone like the next day. It's like Did you bake anything the next day? <laughs> <laughs> I was little. Uh-huh. Yeah. But that that's starting to teeter on into an area that I know we're not we're not comfortable <laughs> right. with. It's not you're getting away from real public health. It's not very it's unsafe. Not how it's intended. We're we've made it this far and we've started to regulate because we've learned by basic science and temperature and, and control and all these things and now we're gonna go backwards. For what reason? We don't know. Well, it's not only that with some of the stuff they're legalizing now, you never know what could be added. Mm-hmm. Well, we I've gotten a few people asking me about like this CBD oil and what yeah. the requirements are. Can we put it in food? And it's so new. We I don't have information on that. You know, there's a lot of information that we're got to seek out. You know, getting kind of scary now. Mm-hmm. Man, but if you're buying food. And it's from a non-licensed place. You're taking that risk yourself. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of goes back to that whole label. This food was not manufactured. You know, they were, it was manufactured in an unlicensed kitchen, not regulated by any health department, state, local. So you're taking regulated that risk. by my by my wife's health department. <laughs> <laughs> Did you claim to stay for? Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you had mentioned something earlier about the mobile units. Yes. Um, and you mentioned how rest, restaurants have restrooms and mobile units wouldn't. And I just wanted to say that restaurants only are required to have those restrooms if they provide dining. Right. So if the place is walk-up or carry-out only, they don't need to provide a restroom. Not for the public. Right. They would still need a restroom for the employees. The plumbing board would require them to not have a facility that's an open and operating business and not provide a restroom for the staff, for the employees. It wouldn't be a health department thing. But our, so ours comes in where, wherein they have uh, seating or not. That's when the health department require you to have a restaurant. I, was I mean, say a that restaurant. How would that work if, let's say, I have a food truck and I pull up, but then I set out picnic tables. That's, you couldn't, Still, that'd be illegal. They'd be oh. doing something illegal. Like I said, I wouldn't do that, but I'm saying this. <laughs> now, if you, if you parked your mobile unit in a park that already had picnic tables, tables okay. and things, and they weren't yours, and you weren't purposely providing those seats. So it's not considered. That's not your, okay. those aren't your seats. But if you're setting out a little tent and a little table and seats, and you're providing seats for them, you have a legitimate health department license. You shouldn't be providing seats. Okay. They need to find those seats on. That's there. a that's a because and it may not have been here. It may have been in another county, but I remember seeing stuff like that. You know, people. You know, mobile truck, food yeah, truck. they'll set up a tent. Now it may have been just them sitting under the tent waiting for customers. I don't know. Okay. But it looked like they had, you know, picnic table there. 
That's all I was wondering about this. Like, well, uh, something yeah. right there. Well, yeah, like Mike said, if we, um, all of our restaurants or any place that we license, with the exception of a mobile unit, they mm -hmm. do have to have at least one restroom provided to the employees. If there's any seats that are provided to the public to come in and sit down and dine, then you have to have a certain number of restrooms based on the number of seats. Okay. And that's determined by the plumbing department. If you have 15 or less seats, you only require to have one public restroom. Um, and that public, that same public restroom can be used by the employees. So essentially, you could just have one bathroom in, in your facility. In a good location. Right. It couldn't be through the kitchen. The public can't right. come through the kitchen to, to get a, to it. Okay. It has to be accessible without going through the kitchen. Right. So if you had a bathroom in the back, you couldn't have the public just walk through your kitchen to get to that bathroom. We would not count that bathroom as a public restroom. So if certain man sees you can only have, you can, one public, let me see if I'm getting this wrong. If you, have, if you have 15 seats or less, less you, you only need to provide one bathroom. You can have as many bathrooms. So it could be as a unisex, want. family, whatever you want yeah, to call it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It has to have one, you really? have at least one bathroom. If you have more than 15 seats, you have to provide at least two public restrooms. Okay. Interesting. I didn't know that. I thought you always had to have like a men and a ladies' bathroom. Mm -hmm. Can. <clears throat> Home can canned goods at, at events or even in the restaurants. How is that regulated? Or, or uh, second part of that question is if we, I do a lot of canning. Can I sell that uh, at, at a Lions event that we that we put on? Well, there's sort of like a two-part question when it re, when regarding the the sale or if you're going to make that as part of a cottage food. Um, process i i don't know if home canning is one of the approved but if you had if your final product was determined by like a scientific <clears throat> food lab to be considered non-potentially hazardous whether the water activity or the ph is at a certain level if that final product was canned and and it was considered to be non-potentially hazardous i think you would be able to get away with than selling it like another non-potentially hazardous food. But I think canning, though, I think that falls under a special process. And there, there, we have a list of the foods that are approved for, for the cottage food. I can't remember if, if it lists whether or not canning, the process of canning would fall under there. But um, I'd have to get back to you about that one. Unless, Mike, if you have any insight on canning. Well, and... Um Certain canned foods are allowed, home canned foods are allowed at a farmer's market and at this, with this cottage food um, regulation. Okay. And those are things of high acid capacity, pH is very low, and those fruits are, are listed. If there are other things that are considered low acid foods, like maybe string beans or something like that, they wouldn't be allowed for right. you to create at home. But things like grape jelly, uh, maybe strawberry jam, those uh, we have a list of fruits that would be eligible for that. And then all the things that aren't on that would not be eligible to be canned at home huh. and then dispensed to the public without getting a home manufacturer license. The state does allow, generally it's in conjunction with a farm, but the state does provide some home canning licenses. Interesting. And you said list. Yeah. Is the list on the website or they'd have to contact you guys? Uh, the, a link to the regulations is on our website. Okay. And within the Maryland Food Code regulations, which is 101503, 
farmers market products are listed in there and the same for what is eligible for cottage food license exem exemption is also listed in there. Okay. So if anybody wants to get a hold of you guys for any questions or anything, what's the phone number? Well, my direct line is uh, 410-877-2309, and that's the Division of Plan Review. So that's including brand new restaurants, whether it's a new build, mm -hmm. or if you want to go into an existing building that was not previously a restaurant, and you're going to outfit to be a new restaurant, or if you want to take over a restaurant that maybe had just recently closed, or if you were going to buy an existing restaurant that's currently in operation, but you're going to take over as a new owner, we would also be contacted for that. If you plan on starting up your own mobile food truck, we would also be a part of that. If you're, if you're an existing restaurant and you're listening to this and you want to make extensive renovation or changes, um, we would also contact our office. Okay. Um, to, to go through the proper procedures in order to do that. And what's the website? www.harfordcountyhealth.com Facebook, Twitter, all of Facebook, Twitter, and now we have a new Instagram. Yes, I Instagram. saw that! Yes. Yes. That's way more fun than... <laughs> the Instagram? Yeah. Uh, don't you think? It's harder, I think, it's to come up with content. It's harder because it's, it's more, yeah, more photo involved than anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it can be more fun. Depending, I mean, it's all depending on what you're posting too. Yeah, that's true. But with you guys, yeah, you, there's a lot you could, you know, post on there and grab attention. Mm -hmm. The key thing is people clicking the link to the website mm -hmm. from Instagram, and a lot of people won't don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, because like I said, with your website, there's so much information right. on there that people can get, mm -hmm. and to drive them there to get, you know. That's the key. That's right. why we have link for our website in our bio, so people mm -hmm. can go there. Right. Yeah. That was your idea? Yeah, Ronnie said for Instagram. Give me a shout out. <laughs> no, you did a good job. I, I, I was shocked. When I saw that pop up, I'm like, whoa, health department's got an Instagram yeah. now. I was like, all right. Stepping up. Stepping up the game. Yeah. Well, I figured Molly had set it up, but I was wrong. Well, I've been wanting to do it for a while because I just felt like it was time to do something different besides Twitter and Facebook. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to reach a younger population. And with our... It's a good idea. And one of our quality improvement um, goals, projects, I guess, yeah. projects was just to try and increase our social media presence and, and increase our social media followers. So... Then, with Rania being here, she's really been helpful. So she has been able to help me out with a lot of. So things. now you guys are on Facebook, mm -hmm. Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we do have YouTube. That's our next goal: is to really Focus build up, vamp up our our YouTube channel. Yeah, because you guys do a lot of videos. Uh, not not as much as we should. Well, I'm, you know, I keep thinking of the public health matters. Oh yeah, I mean. I, that's been on my to-do list for, I don't know, a year, is to put our Public Health Matter show on our YouTube channel. Put it on the website, too. It oh, is. Oh, it is? Okay. Mm -hmm. It's not, like, in, in plain sight where you can see it, but right. we always publicize that through Facebook and Twitter, but there is a link on our website to that show. Okay. All right. Yeah. And now, now when, you know, one thing on your website... Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys do this or not. I don't think you do. You don't have a blog. 
We have an yeah. HIV blog we just started, actually. Okay. So, but no, not a general blog. Mm-hmm. To actually create content for, yeah. for a discussion. Yeah, we don't have that. That'd be a good idea. I mean, just, um, do that and then let me know. What, what, cross it. Mm-hmm. So it's coming up on both sides to generate more traffic. Yeah. Yeah, we actually just started an HIV blog, I don't know, maybe like two or three yeah. weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really new. That's new. Okay. Yeah, so they can talk about HIV, but um, yeah, not just a general blog of conversation. We were talking the last podcast. It's still amazing how many people in the county don't realize everything that the health department does. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah. Um, or even know where they're at. Well, the last right. one we did the dental. I had no idea <laughs> about all of that. Oh, yeah. 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 No idea that you guys did all that. Yeah. People in the health department don't realize all the things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is why if you come on May 3rd yeah. to help our own staff know the stuff that we're doing, that would be helpful. Um, I just wanted to mention that a general line for environmental health, uh, food control and food service facilities comes under environmental health uh, division of the health department. And a general phone number for us is... 410-877-2300. So all the questions that might not deal with right. Justin's plan review issues should come in through that other line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mike doesn't want to give out his personal line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. But actually, that you say that, so the website, we actually um, kind of redid the menu of our website. So environmental health, instead of having everything listed, mm-hmm. and really took up a lot of space, we have it separated into two mm-hmm. two, two um Unit. So it's resource protection and consumer protection. Okay. So click on consumer protection, right? For yes, for, for food, food related issues. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And resource protection would be wells and septic system mm-hmm. related issues. Right. Experience a treasure straight from the Caribbean. It's called Island Spice, right off I-95 at exit 77. Island Spice is beautifully decorated. Try the Rasta pasta, jerk chicken, curry chicken, roti, oxtails, or goat too. Sit in the stylish lounge for happy hour drinks from 4 to 7 daily. Check out their complete menu at islandspicejamaicarestaurant.com or follow us on Facebook for upcoming events like reggae, karaoke, live jazz, and paint night too. Island Spice, make you lick your finger, man. 